Thank you very much. Well, do please keep Malachi chapter 1 open on page 960. And I think there's a little outline on the back of the service sheet as well, a fairly meager outline from me, but something there of a roadmap of where we're going. Well, it was lovely the other day to hear news of another prince or princess on the way for the Windsors. I guess it struck me the other day that it's been pretty, a few pretty big years for the royal family. First, it was the wedding, then the jubilee, then most recently, the arrival of baby George. But if you would, just flip back in your minds through recent royal events, back to the first one I mentioned there, back in 2011, and the royal wedding. Now, looking back on that day three years on now, one of the great things about it, I think, was the reassurance that it gave that when it really counts, when it really matters, Britain can still put on a really good show. Lovely cars, impressive clothes, an elegant service in a great cathedral. No other country does it quite so well. But if you'd bear with me for a moment, I'd like us to exercise our imaginations for a second and consider just an alternative outline of the events of that day. Imagine that on the morning of the 29th of April 2011, Kate Middleton woke up and took her new dress out of its bag. And as she examined the dress, she noticed a coffee stain on the train and then saw that two or three of the buttons were a little bit loose. And then as she put it on, she found that it was just a little bit baggy around the waist and frayed at the hem. Imagine that as Prince William took his smart new red jacket out of its Jeeves and Hawks bag, he found that he'd been sent the jacket of the wrong regiment and one that had clearly been a display model for some months, with a tear in the lining and a mark on the sleeve. Imagine the look on Kate's face if she emerged from the Goring Hotel that morning to be greeted by the sight of a clapped-out old limousine, spewing black smoke from the exhaust. Imagine her despair to see that no one had bothered to wash the car, and no one was there to open the door or to help her in. Imagine William's dismay as he arrives at Westminster Abbey to see the Dean and the Archbishop of Canterbury sitting on the steps wearing blue jeans and trainers, chewing on a McDonald's hamburger while they awaited his arrival. Well, of course, I'm being silly now. None of that could ever happen in a million years. That would be a scandal. But our Bible passage this afternoon recounts I think, a more serious scandal, and one in which, to some extent at least, you and I are involved. In our passage today from the book of Malachi, the Lord God of heaven, who in verse 14 reminds us that he is a great king, rebukes the priests and the people of Israel because they've forgotten who he is and they have dared to offer him second best. As the scandal of these verses unfolds, we see what God's people, they then, and to some extent at least, we now have done. We have dared to give the King of Kings second best, the leftovers of our lives, and done so with a staggering coolness of heart. The prophet Malachi was the final Old Testament prophet to bring God's word to his people before John the Baptist arrived on the scene four centuries down the road. 
The exile in Babylon had finished some years ago now for the people, and they were back in Jerusalem, back in Judah. But the great promises of some of the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah, of a great restoration of the fortunes of God's people after the exile and of renewed glory for Israel, well, those promises seem not to have been fulfilled. Sure, the people were back in the land and back in Jerusalem, but the restored nation could hardly be called glorious. Israel was now more than a little more than a dusty backwater annexed to a very great empire. And this somewhat unremarkable period in the life and history of the people of God in the Old Testament is frequently marked by half-heartedness and by apathy, as this rather disheartened and discouraged people fail to remember God's glory, who he is, and what is his worth. Now, it's out of that context that the scandal of these verses develops. I pause to mention all that background because Although we live many centuries on from the people addressed in Malachi, we too live in days of partial fulfillment of the promises of God. Yes, the Savior has come, Jesus has arrived, and we're a huge step on because of that. But we're still waiting for his final return and for the judgment and for the new creation. The great promises of God in the Bible are still only partially fulfilled even though we're a big step on. And I think it's easy for us today, living in the increasingly secular West, in this increasingly secular country, to feel very discouraged about the progress of the gospel. And when we don't seem to see all that much happening in our day, in our age, in terms of the progress of God's kingdom, how easily we fall into that same scandal of half-heartedness and miserliness toward the God we serve. The prophet shows us, first of all, the nature of the scandal, as I show on the outline there. Then he reveals its source in our hearts. And then he points us forward to its ultimate solution. That's where we're going, the scandal, its source, and its solution. First, then, the scandal itself. In verse 2, the people of Judah have dared to ask God how it is that he has shown his love to them. And he responds in verses 3 to 5, verses that we don't have time to tackle in detail this afternoon, although they're important verses. He responds that he has loved them deeply and powerfully and profoundly by setting upon them and not others his saving love. But more pressing than the question they ask of God is the question that God asks of the people in verse 6. Where is the honor Due to me. Verse 6, let's look at it together. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you by saying that the Lord's temple is, uh, table is contemptible? When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord's rebuke here is targeted primarily at the priests, the leaders and the clergy 
in Israel because, of course, they set the spiritual temperature for the rest of the people through their teaching. And in those days, they presented the people's offerings at the temple as well. And we could spend all our time in these verses just thinking about how they apply to Christian leaders. That would be a valid and important thing to do. But the rebuke of these verses apply much more broadly as well to the people who supply the offering. Just notice verse 14. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and who vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It's Passover time in Judah, and Freddie the farmer is preparing to head up to Jerusalem with his wife and his children to offer a sacrifice at the temple. Their bags are packed, and the family are all loaded into the people carrier. Freddie has put the key in the ignition, and he's ready to go. And then just in the nick of time, he remembers the lamb. How could I forget the lamb? How stupid of me. He jumps out again and nips round to the back of the house to retrieve the lamb that he has chosen from his flock to bring along for the sacrifice. Now, as Freddie stands at the back of his house and surveys his little flock, a nice, fat, and very fluffy lamb waddles by. And Freddie has second thoughts. Maybe not that one after all, thinks Freddie. He would make such a delicious roast for the dinner party next week when our friends come round. And actually, as I think of it, not that one or that one. They are really quite plump now, and they'll get a really good price at market. Ah, yes, he says to himself, as a scrawny little lamb with one eye and a gammy leg limps by. And there I was thinking you were a goner after that fox got at you. And he tosses the wretched little scrap of a lamb over his shoulder, and he heads for the temple with his family. It seems innocent enough. Surely it's the thought that counts after all. Surely it's the principle that something is offered to the Lord at the temple. Surely God isn't fussy about the details. Surely he doesn't mind. But the fact is, the Lord does mind, and he's deeply unimpressed. Verse 14, notice it again. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock, and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. We may read all this as New Testament people and think, I suppose that is pretty shocking, badly played, Freddy. But of course, it's okay for us, isn't it? I mean, we don't have a temple, we don't have a sacrificial system, or anything like that anymore. And on one level, our instinct there is perfectly correct. Only a perfect sacrifice will ever please God and deal with our guilt before him. And Jesus has offered the perfect sacrifice to the Lord to deal with our guilt once for all as he gave himself at the cross to pay the price of our guilt before God and to satisfy fully his requirements. If you're here this afternoon as someone who is new to Christian things, in one sense, let me encourage you to ignore everything else I say this afternoon, but to register this one key point. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross 2,000 years ago is the only means by which God's requirements can be met for us. And it's only through trusting in him and him alone that we can be made right with God. 
That's the very heart of the Christian message. And it is astoundingly good news. But for the Christian believer, we read these verses as people who, yes, now do approach God through the Lord Jesus and through his sacrifice and what he's done, knowing that everything needed to please God has been done by him. And that because of Jesus, we're acceptable now. No more lambs, no more temple visits, no more sacrifice. But if we read these verses thinking that they contain no challenge for us and no rebuke, I think we're badly mistaken. We're mistaken because we forget that God still calls on us to offer sacrifices to him as new covenant Christian people. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, don't turn to it, let me just read that verse for us. It's a well-known verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, writes the Apostle Paul, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul's saying we respond as Christian people to the mercies of God shown to us in Jesus, who gave himself for us, by giving ourselves to him as living sacrifices. And so with that in mind, Malachi chapter 1 requires us to ask of ourselves, what kind of offerings do you and I place on the altar before our God and King? What's the quality of our sacrifice like? And what is the cost of it to us? Are we giving God our very best, holding back nothing from his use? Where might you and I be shortchanging God, even today, with meager and with blemished offerings. Let's just think that one through practically for a moment. Think about our time. That's a precious commodity for all of us. Where does God fit in when you and I allocate our time? Where does our best time go? And what receives priority when we divide up our day and our week and our year? What time do we set aside for reading God's word? for serving his people, for meeting together each week? Would we ever look at our year ahead of time and think of setting aside a whole week for some form of Christian service, serving on a camp or a holiday club where the gospel will be explained, or perhaps on a short-term mission in some context? Would the thought ever cross our minds to use our holidays like that? Do we give priority to the gospel uh, over and above our social engagements and our sport and our entertainment and our downtime? Or do we offer him the blind and the lame leftovers of our day and our week and our year, just whatever time is left when all our other priorities are met? How about our mind? We only have so much brain power to go around and so much intellectual attention despair. Do we make it our business to worship God sacrificially with our minds, reading his word and mining it for all its riches, reading Christian books perhaps, going to our Bible study group midweek, having looked at the passage beforehand and thought a little bit about it, giving our full attention to the reading of God's word and the preaching of God's word? Or is our mental energy just used up elsewhere? Is it spent with things that we deem more important, so that we just kind of kick our brains into neutral when it comes to God's word. When it comes to the use of our minds, are we offering God our very best or the leftovers? 
God has treated us with great dignity, I think, by speaking to us as rational people through his word. That's one of the great privileges of being uh, made in his image. Do we respond to that sacrificially by giving him back our minds that they might be used for his service and his glory and the good of his people? How about our future? Have we really placed the years ahead, each one of us, our plans for education, maybe, our thoughts about marriage and about singleness, our career ambitions? Have we placed all that before the Lord on the altar, as it were, and really said to God, that is yours first and foremost? Or is our future with its plans and its ambitions and its hopes and its dreams, is it firmly ours, mine, with God getting the leftovers? How about our networks of friendships and relationships? I just wonder if we see our contacts in the community and at school and our professional networks as an offering that we can give to God. Are we constantly thinking, how can I use this friendship? How can I use this relationship for the sake of the kingdom? How can I tell this friend about the gospel? How can I encourage this colleague on in her faith? Or do we see certain social spheres as just off-limits for the gospel? It would just put such a dampener on things to bring the Lord Jesus into that conversation. It would be so hard to bring the gospel in at this stage. Might we be holding back from wholehearted sacrifice when it comes to our relationships and our contacts? How about our homes? Are they simply fortresses where we hide from the world and make ourselves comfortable and secure? Or are they outposts for the kingdom used for God's glory before our own comfort? Another obvious one, our money. Does the Lord Jesus have first call on that? We could go on. But here's the uncomfortable truth that Malachi brings home for us. God does notice when we give him second best. It matters to him. And he's displeased. Verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Well, that's the scandal. Now we move on to look at its source. Why did the people of Israel behave like this in their day? And why, at least to some extent, in our sinfulness do we today? If I can summarize what the passage tells us about the source or cause of this scandal, it's simply this. We have too small a view of God. Look again at the logic of the Lord's argument. In verse 6, he makes the basic point that a son honors his father and a servant honors his master. That's normal. That's the way things should be. We get that. But God is our heavenly father and he is our divine master. And so the question is, do we treat him with the respect and honor that even a human father or a human master would expect? If our boss at work tells us to do such and such or to show up at such and such a time, we do it or we know our job is on the line. God says to us, just to take a fairly random example, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Hebrews 10.25. It's an instruction Make a point of getting yourself to church week by week as a first-order priority, not second-order, not third-order. We hear that, and what do we say to ourselves quietly? Well, well, sure, 
you know, as long as it's convenient, obviously. Of, of course I will. I'll make that a priority. That is, as long as it doesn't clash with the other stuff I've got on just at the moment. God continues, middle of verse 8. You bring me the leftovers of your time and energy and gifts, and you expect me to be impressed by that. How would the local governor respond to your meager and your straggly gift? Would you have the nerve, really, to present that to a government official, the mayor or the MP, or a royal figure or someone like that? Would you have the nerve to present something so pathetic to him or to her? And if you did, what would be the response? God's charge is this. Whatever we might say we believe about him, our actions so often show that we view him as deserving less honor and less respect than we know is due to human leaders in our family, in our workplace, and in our community. I don't know where or how we do that, and I guess in lots of ways it'll be different for each of us. But wherever we're doing it, time, money, future plans, use of our homes, gospel service, it betrays the fact that our view of God is simply too small. And so God reminds us of the truth, end of verse 14 again. I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared. You may have noticed that the name used for the Lord throughout this chapter is a rather unusual one. The Lord Almighty. And I think it's no accident that the prophet uses that particular name for God here. Other translations translate that name, the Lord of hosts, meaning that the Lord is the Lord, the ruler of heaven's armies. It points to the fact that he is a mighty ruler and a mighty warrior. This God, the God we trust, is a great king, the almighty Lord of heaven's armies. And so we need to ask ourselves, remembering who he is, if we're content to give God the leftovers of our lives, and if we expect him to be content with that, if that's our attitude, do we really know him? And do we remember who he is? Do we understand that he is the creator and the judge of all things? Do we believe that he is the sovereign king of the entire universe? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. The scandal, its source, and finally now its solution. And here we're looking in particular at verses 10 and 11. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. In verses 10 and 11, God shows his frustration with these insufficient and really insulting sacrifices. But he reveals a vision and an intention to create a global people, not just Jews, but a people all around the world who will offer him acceptable sacrifices and who will honor his name rightly. And so in verses 10 and 11, we're given that big picture of God's gospel plan for the world. And we need to understand it and then see how we fit into it. In verse 10, he longs that those insufficient offerings given at the Jerusalem temple would come to an end. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. And of course, that is just what did happen eventually. 
in the year AD 70, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And since that year, there has been no more temple offering. It is finished, done with. The doors have been shut, and God receives no more offerings in that way. So that's been fulfilled. But nonetheless, God looks beyond the temple system and beyond Jerusalem itself in verse 11. And he insists that his name, his reputation, will be great. Now, not just among the Jews, but among all the nations. And this is looking very hopeful. And it gets better. God's name will be great among the nations, verse 11, from the rising to the setting sun. And that phrase there is a big clue to us of what's going on in these verses. Because that key phrase is used a number of times in the Bible, in the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah in particular, to speak of God's big picture plan for bringing judgment and salvation to his people through the gospel. And ultimately to fulfill those purposes in a new creation. I won't take the time to run through examples now. I'll ask you to take my word on it. And ask me for references later if you want to. But the point is that verse 11 is that kind of a big picture, salvation plan, wide angle lens kind of a verse. That's where it's taking us. God will act both with judgment and with salvation. And the end result of all that will be a people who bring him acceptable sacrifices and who honor his name rightly. That's the big picture. So where do we fit into that? And how does it all come together? How does God make his name great? And how does he gather this worldwide people and enable them to make those acceptable sacrifices to him? Well, of course, it'll be no surprise to us that this must happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews, I think, shows us how. If you would, perhaps you could just turn with me to the final chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. And that's page 1211 in these Bibles, I think. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 11, actually 1212. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus himself is the great sacrifice for sin. Jesus has offered the necessary sacrifice by dying himself. And God is pleased with that in a way that he was never pleased with the sacrifices at the temple in an ultimate way. Jesus made us holy through his blood in a way that no animal sacrifice ever could have done that. Even the best animal sacrifice could never actually make a person holy and acceptable to God. It could never ultimately deal with the problem of human guilt before a holy judge. And it could never restore our relationship with him. But Jesus has done it. His perfect sacrifice has satisfied God's requirements and has really made us acceptable in his sight if we're trusting in him. But now look down to verse 15 of Hebrews 13. Through Jesus, therefore... Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. As believers who have been cleansed and made holy by Jesus' self-sacrifice, we can offer God acceptable daily sacrifices of praise and of witness and service as a response to what he's done for us. 
But we will only give imperfect sacrifices ourselves in this life here on earth. The complete fulfillment of that vision of worship from the rising to the setting of the sun only comes fully and finally in heaven when sin is done away with. But back to Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, our offerings to God now are pure in his sight in the sense that they are now given through the Lord Jesus. If you like, God looks on our still meager and imperfect sacrifice of praise and of witness and of service. He looks on all that, however feebly done, through the lens of Jesus's perfect sacrifice. And what we give him is made acceptable because it's seen through Jesus and in Jesus. But here's the tension and here's the challenge for us. Surely as those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus through his death and resurrection and who are made acceptable to God through him, surely the standard for us now is, if anything, higher and not lower than it was for the Old Testament people of God. Surely as those who have seen God's costly salvation through the gift of his son and who have been given his spirit to live within us and to help us, Surely the bar is, if anything, set a whole lot higher now and not lower. Surely God expects of us, and rightly, all that we are and all that we have. I wonder where it is and how it is that you and I are just holding back from doing that even today. As I finish, it may be that you're someone who spent uh, months and years, maybe even decades wondering how it is that you can please God and be acceptable to him. I know that most of us here are probably trusting in the Lord Jesus, but I guess that won't be the case necessarily for everyone. And you may have read these words here in Malachi chapter 1 about blemished sacrifices and second best offerings and all the rest, and actually felt condemned by that, knowing that you only ever give God second best if you give him anything at all. But if you feel challenged, as you feel challenged, make sure you see the great hope and the great promise of verse 11. God has made that way for all people to worship him acceptably and to respond to him rightly. He has a vision, he has a plan, he has a solution, and he has fulfilled that in the Lord Jesus. If you know that you're not right with him and you long to be right with him and long to please him, You need to come to him through the Lord Jesus and through his shed blood by trusting in him. And the great promise of God's word is that in the Lord Jesus, those who trust him are acceptable. Well, let's take a moment of quiet to reflect on what we've heard, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. Our Father, we thank you for your great gospel plans fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and to be fulfilled completely, fully and finally when he comes again. We thank you for his great sacrifice that makes us acceptable to you. And we pray that in response to that, we would give ourselves to you all that we are and all that we have with gratitude and joy. For Jesus' sake. Amen.
Well, our final song is a reminder of those great gospel promises that Jonathan's just reminded us of. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. The second verse, particularly, because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. Let's stand and declare the wonderful gospel together. Thank you.